welcome back, Siege fans. In our last episode, looking at Prepper Fiction, we looked at what was probably the granddaddy of Doom fiction tropes, Comet Doom. I pointed out somewhere in there about how the end of the world as we knew it, due to Comet Impact, was all the rage, if that's what you could call it, for something like 150 years. Even into the 1930s, they were still making uh, books and movies about something wiping out all of mankind on the Earth, but it came from outer space. All of that was fine until the atom bomb got dropped on Hiroshima in 1945. Then suddenly the world had something brand new to be afraid of. As scary as it was to have a random universe without God in charge and horrible things falling on us from outer space... It was a whole lot scarier to have a universe where people were in charge. We suddenly had the power to wipe ourselves out. So, since Nuke Doom upstaged Comet Doom for yeah, almost 40 years, it seemed like a good topic for this episode. And it was kind of a pet project of mine, looking at sci-fi movies of the 1950s. It was pretty obvious watching a lot of those movies that 50s sci-fi pretty routinely explored the consequences and ramifications of civilization being wiped out by nukes. It was pretty rare, actually, when I look back on it, to find a 50s sci-fi that didn't use nuke doom in some way or in some analogy. I mean, even the, uh, the sort of stereotypical 50s sci-fi movie Godzilla, which is 1954, Godzilla was an allegory of nuclear destruction. You know, mankind wakes him up and then he goes stomping all over the place and nobody can stop him. So as I was making lists of nuke fiction, nuke doom fiction, I noticed that they were falling into two broad categories. That they were either tales of despair in which everybody died, or it looked like everybody was going to die pretty bad. Or there was the hope group where somebody survives and civilization starts over and rebuilds. And I don't know if you guys had noticed that kind of a, a separation in the Nuke Doom stories that you'd read or movies. No, they're all pretty much bad. <laughs> so you, you were the audience for the, the bad news movies? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I remember um, in the early 80s, there was a TV series. What was that? The Day After? Does that sound right? Yeah, 1983. Ah, there we go. And I remember watching that. It was one of those very gloomy stories where the nukes all fall and middle-class life basically gets wiped out. It was pretty intentionally horrible. So but yeah, that was, that was a classic. Uh, and it was filmed here where I live. So touched home in a lot of ways. But yeah, you're right. It, you don't win that one. I don't remember how that one ended. Maybe just my mind shut off when the pretty girl died, and so I, well, I don't care anymore. How did that end, anyway? With Jason Robards, the one of the main characters, uh, he finally makes it back to his home, which is a pile of rubble, and finds some other people that are just distraught sitting on his front porch. And he had the hope that his wife would be there, but no, it was a flattened mess, just like uh, in all the other movies. Hmm. I think those type of stories are going to get a little bit more common with everything going on right now in society. You think they're going to go for the uh, we're all doomed spin? Yeah, I think it's going to replace zombies. <laughs> zombies had their time? Yeah. Well, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves because we can do zombie doom later. Yeah. 
think, Brian, I had mentioned to you last time with Comet Doom, uh, 1959 movie On the Beach. Did you say you watched that? I did. It was very uplifting. <laughs> you mean the one, the part that everybody died? Yeah, no survivors. Yes. It wasn't a bad movie, though. I no, mean, no, it, it was. Yeah, it was exploring, I mean, in a sort of everybody's going to die, but it was kind of dwelling on that. If we're all going to die, what are we going to do with ourselves in our last moments or days? I guess it wasn't moments. There was a guy, he wanted to be a race car driver, and they show little snippets of the last race all these drivers are going to race, and they're racing crazily, and some of them are crashing, but it's kind of like, well, what does it matter if I crash and die in a race? I'm going to die anyway, so I may as well be doing it racing. My favorite scene was the guy that left the sub and went to one of the stores. There's no people left, but apparently you could still get in the stores and got himself a case of beer and just sat there and waited to die. Which kind of fits that notion of, well, if you know you've only got a, a few days left, what are you going to do? He chose to drink. The Fred Astaire character chose to race until he died. I don't remember what the Ava Gardner character, what her sort of hedonistic last moment was. But then we had the the brave submariners on the U.S. submarine. I think they just sort of power off all over the horizon, knowing that they're going to die or something. I can't remember. It wasn't. It was kind of non-dramatic for an ending, and just kind of trailed off. Yeah, they skipped the entire event, didn't they? They just kind of. Went oh yeah, yeah. What after effects were? Yeah, it was all set in Australia after the nuclear war. The radiation and the fallout was all going to get to Australia eventually, like a matter of weeks or something. But everybody there was kind of, oh, well, we're doomed. We're toast. So that's where they all were kind of settling into their, what sort of hedonistic thing can I do in my last few days? It would have been a little bit more realistic if they'd have done the nuclear winter and there's no sunshine and the black rain and all that stuff. Yeah, they weren't really dwelling on that part of it. It was a lot more of this kind of humanity's toast. And I remember there was kind of a recurring scene in there where they had a religious revival on the steps of some building. Do you remember that scene? No, I don't. You know, it, it sort of popped up every now and then that they had a big banner in the back that said, uh, brother, there's still time. The crowd was of whatever size, but then the next time they would cut to it, the crowd would be about half that size. Time next to last time they cut to it, there was only four or five guys there. And then the movie ends with a close-up of that banner drooping off to one side where it says, brother, it's not too late, which sort of put the icing on the cupcake to say that, oh, this is a nuclear disarmament film. So that was kind of their whole point, was to make nuclear war so very horrible that people would, I guess, write their congressman and try and urge for nuclear disarmament. I do remember that now. I thought it was interesting that earlier in the 50s, there were more optimistic. I mean, they were still bad, but it wasn't like everybody's going to die and there is no hope. I think one of the first nuclear doom movies was 1951. The title is Five. And it's a story of five different people who survived the nuclear holocaust because one guy was in a bank vault. I can't remember where they all were, but they each survived because of some fluke of where they happened to have been when it went off. And so all five of them come up to find this world where everybody's been killed and everything is all irradiated, or at least nuclear holocaust is going to wipe out most of humanity but there will still be a remnant that survives. And it ends with a kind of classic Adam and Eve kind of ending where the one woman and the one good guy are the final survivors of the five. 
they walk off hand in hand and it's sort of understood that they're going to start over civilization. So as bad as it was, there was still that hope at the end. I suppose Godzilla even has that since Godzilla goes back into the ocean and not all of Tokyo was stomped. So Jeff, what other sort of gloomy nuke stories do you recall? From the movie side of it, you have a the copycat version of that, which was Threads, but basically it was the same thing out of uh, the UK. The copy of that came out in 2012, which was not everybody dies, but nobody has it easy. On, on the movie side, they're all pretty much similar and uh, just a different set of actors. But the book side of it, Alas Babylon, which if, if you haven't read that book, that's it's a must. Yeah, it's usually on Preppers' uh, favorite reading lists. That's where I first came across it. And I thought, well, I've never heard of it. So I got it and I read it. And I thought, all right, that was kind of interesting. I was surprised it was 1959, though. I thought it was newer than that. So did I. I didn't realize it was that old. I didn't either. But it was kind of of that same, tried to scare you and say nuclear war exchanges is going to wipe out civilization as we know it. Although there's that little pocket of them down there in Florida who weren't irradiated and they weren't wiped out. They were just kind of cut off survivors. I think that one even had kind of an Adam and Eve thing to it, didn't it? There's hope. But like you say, it's going to be rough. But you had somebody that survived thinking that the nuke doom stories would have that kind of prepper interest. How could I survive a nuclear war? Well, that's where people start buying their their bunkers, I guess, to put in their backyards. What sorts of tips or tricks or advice would the movies or stories have for how to be one of those people that come out of the bunker and rebuild civilization? But that's where I came across that split, that dichotomy that, well, some of them didn't have anybody survive. It was all terrible. And then there were some where survival was just assumed. People were going to survive, and you wanted to be one of them. But Brian, you and I were talking about civil defense films in school and duck and cover and that sort of thing. Do you remember any advice they were trying to give us how we were supposed to survive other than hide under our radiation-proof desks? You remember the duck and cover? Oh, yeah. That was early on. I mean, that was probably first or second grade, so my memory of that is, is very lacking. But then once I went into the military, when I went in the Army, that was in 83, we were doing a lot of MBC training. It's the MBC suits, uh, the nuclear, biological, and... Chemical. We were, chemical, what? yeah. Oh, it doesn't we, stand for comet? I don't know what I was thinking. We spent a lot of time, we would get into these quarter-ton Jeeps and just drive around a field in our mop gear, which is the MBC suits in, in our gas masks. And I think it was like 8, 10, or 12 hours or something we had to wear that. Was it a weight loss program? Yeah. I mean, well, I didn't need to lose weight at that time, but you definitely sweat in that in Georgia. Yeah, it was It was not a pleasant training exercise, but they really instilled the importance of it, being able to function in that and survive in that and fight in, in that type of gear. It was very restrictive clothing. How long did they expect you to need to survive wearing your NBC suit? You know, I don't recall them ever really given a time limit. You know, we went through decontamination centers and type of thing like that. We would run shifts. The strange thing is those were usually out in the field in tents. So I don't know how much protection that would give you. We were young and dumb and stuff and full of vinegar and didn't really probably really consider the, the actual reasoning behind all that training at the time. At least I did. Because I thought I had seen some literature 
fairly recently that talked about if there was fallout, like where I am in New Hampshire, if something landed on Boston, well, the blast isn't going to get me, but uh, the fallout is going to come in the form of the ash or the, the acid rain or whatever else that you had to basically seal up your house and stay indoors for two weeks. And then after a couple of weeks, then, uh, all right, it's not totally dangerous to go outside. That almost made it sound like, yeah, it was just like a bad case of COVID. And then after that, you just carry on. I was just wondering if the Army had any anything akin to that, like you guys are going to have to wear these suits for two weeks, but then after that, back to business? No, I imagine they would just tell us, you know, with their testing equipment. If you're at home and you don't have the testing equipment, I imagine you'd have to send your pets and younger children outside to see if they survive. With that idea of survivability, you know, a lot of those early movies in the 50s seem to assume that maybe even a fair number of people were going to survive. It wasn't quite the gloom of on the beach or the day after where pretty much everybody's wiped out and there's nothing worth saving. It seemed to be assumed that a lot of those earlier films, yeah, it's a bad, bad thing to have nukes wipe out almost everything, but some people will survive and they're going to pick up the pieces and carry on. How much of that do you believe was propaganda? What, the survivability? No, with the Hollywood gloom and doom, the, the worst possible aspect of nuclear war. Looking back on it, I think it might be more a kind of activist spin. I mean, we see Hollywood's nothing but activist spin nowadays. There may have been a faction in Hollywood that was rabidly pro-nuclear disarmament. And so they really like sort of push the message. I mean, with that ending that was on the beach with the banner, Brother, There's Still Time was a little flagrant that, yeah, yeah, you're trying to tell me to write my congressman. I don't mean to say that it's not devastating or very important. I just... With the uh, propaganda that we got through the civil defense, there may have been a little bit of agenda. I kind of think so. Now, I'm not sure what the agenda was or why in the mid-80s. What'd you say, Jeff, 1983? Yeah, 83, 84 was a little stretch. I don't know what opened that back up because most of the movies had that hope that somebody would survive. Yeah, it's bad. Everybody can agree it's bad, but somebody will survive and they'll start over and there were a few of those movies, like On the Beach, or The Day After, or Threads. I don't know why the early 80s were ramping up. I don't know if that was like fear of Reagan. They thought he was going to start a war, so they thought, oh, we have to remind people about how bad it is. If it did happen, that would be one way to increase the percentage of preppers. Yeah. Well, nowadays you think it might. Well, what may have started that was in 79, there was a documentary called First Strike. So I don't know, something in the timing, the genre, whatever. You know, go back to your thoughts on Hollyweird, Mick. They got to give us hope, so we'll keep coming back. You know, we, we won't come back if every movie ends with nothing. Well, I kind of agree that audiences, they're there to be entertained as opposed to be preached at or make national policy. So, yeah, I can see where the survivor tale is a lot more uplifting, or at least it leaves the door open that, you know, you should probably not just go sit up on your roof and wait to die. There was a really campy one in the mid-50s called Day the World Ended. It was kind of the you-can-survive-the-nuke-if-you're-in-the-right-kind-of-place story, that there was a dad and his daughter and I think three or four other people who have avoided the whole terrible world-killing radiation by being in some sheltered valley where his cabin happened to be. 
that one had that sort of bunker assumption that you can survive if you're in the right place, as opposed to just you're wiped out toast everywhere. The daughter, she ends up, again, the Adam and Eve moment where she and the other sort of conveniently hunky other random character end up getting together. I mean, it had a good title, Day the World Ended, because in the mid-50s, people were freaking out about the world ending. I think more of that's coming, too. I think the more we get involved with wars outside the country, we're going to probably stir up some more interest in, in the end of the world type of scenario. You think we're going to end up with the same sort of dichotomy of end of the world and everybody dies in the jihad? Or maybe not, not everybody, but I wonder if the, you know, we had the civil defense. We do need some type of information going out to the public as far as what to do and how to prepare for a nuclear event. Didn't we see that somewhat recently? I think maybe at the start of the Ukraine-Russia war, that there were some public service announcements having to do with radiation. It seemed like the list had been talking about some of those, but that was all of what, two years ago now? There's a website or PDF. I've stated that like 90% or 99% of the potential deaths could be eliminated just with some common sense actions or reactions from the, from the public. Like well, now you, you got me curious light. now. What are we supposed to do? You don't look at the light for one thing. You don't want to stand in front of your windows because the glass is going to come at you the speed of a bullet. If you're outside, you want to get inside as quick as possible cover up all those broken windows and stay indoors. Is this the two-week thing? Yeah, two weeks at a minimum. Yeah, depending on how close you are to the uh, epicenter, the blast area. And depending on how many and where they're at. In other words, if there was like a full-out nuclear war where everybody's unleashing everything they have, because you're going to have the nuclear winter where there's no sun for a couple of years. Some, Some places even suggest up to 10 years with no sun. So there goes your plants, and your food, your livestock, all that type of thing. A lot of people would starve before they even had to worry about nuclear fallout. So do the experts That's agree on the nuclear winter thing? It's hard to say. There, some of the documents out there will put a nice little pretty spin on it, and other ones are all doom and gloom, and you, you know, you're just going to die. It's very contradicting as far as what's available out there. That's one of the frustrating things about researching a topic like this. That's a worst case scenario. The mutually assured destruction has worked up to this point. So it's hard to imagine anyone being a maniac enough to just push all the buttons. You know, maybe, maybe blow up a city or two, but let loose with the entire arsenal. That would be world ending. I mean, not for everyone. I'm sure the cockroaches would probably survive. Yeah, funny you should mention the cockroaches. There was a a sci-fi movie, 1977, called Damnation Alley that assumed that most of the U.S. was irradiated badlands, but there were still pockets of survivors in various places. The whole story is about a squad of people or a group, I can't remember, that get into this fancy radiation-proof all-terrain vehicle, and they're going to drive from the West Coast to Boston or someplace to meet up with some other pocket of survivors. And as they're going through a lot of filmed in the desert scenes, they encounter giant radioactive cockroaches. So there you go. It's in a movie. So we know it's going to happen. And it's that was, official. But they're ra- you said they're radiated, so they're yeah. not good for food. And just for trivia's sake, that was an early George Papard movie, if you're a George Papard fan. I didn't see it, but my son watched it, and he was telling me about it, a series called Jericho. 
wasn't that based on the idea of there being pockets of survivors? Because you know, with the blast stuff that you were talking about, Brian, that's going to affect maybe 5% of the continental U.S. that is going to be in the blast zone. But there's a whole lot of area that's not in the blast zone. And it seemed like the uh, the Jericho story was, this is what's going on outside the blast zone. Like I say, I didn't watch it. I just remember my son talking to me about it. Did either of you watch that series? Yeah, I watched it religiously. It's kind of the, the original cult thing before The Walking Dead. Yeah, I mean, there was limited nukes used from basically from within, kind of like a terror cell that set them off. It really delved into how communities work together and then went up against the tyrannical government that tried to take over everybody's rights and everything and kind of reset the agenda. Was it a real government or was it like a local warlord kind of a thing? No, no. The national government kind of redistricted itself, but the smaller community types were just kind of pushing back on them. So what did the, the survivor pockets in Jericho do about the the fallout and the rest of that? Or was it really just kind of social structure is gone and now we're back in tribal life? You know, it was how do we get power? How do we get food? It was real basic, but then they kept evolving to where they had their own kind of government. And as the country started putting itself back together, that's when the outside national government started encroaching on their stuff and kind of mandating some things that were not jiving with the locals. It was a good series. Yeah, makes me wish I'd have watched it, but I didn't. That part sort of reminds me of a movie I watched just recently, which isn't really Nuke Doom exactly. Kevin Costner's The Postman, T97, I think that was. Did either of you guys see that one? I'm sure I have at some point. But the uh, the premise there is that the events are happening, I think, like 15 or 18 years after the nuclear exchange. Because the dialogue makes reference to the long winter and all of the ash and other things that Brian was saying were probably going to happen. Kevin Costner is kind of a random loner con man, really, who dons a, a postman's uniform and tries to use that as a con to get food by saying that, oh, no, the United States government is coming back into operation. That's why they sent me out here to deliver the mail. And all the while, he knows there's no government. And there's, it's just him delivering whatever happened to be in the bag of the dead postman that he found. But in doing that, he ends up instilling hope in people that the government is going to come back. And because they had hope, they end up self-fulfilling their dreams of rebuilding civilization. So what else you got, Jeff, in your doom bag, your bag of doom? Well, I mean, we always try to make this into, uh, you know, what what do we learn as preppers? So my take in all this as the technology information has become more available and obviously location is important to survive the the initial blast. What could you do or what do you have to do in order to survive? Is it that magical two weeks or is it a 30 days or, you know, what's a magic number you got to hide in your little hole? Can you just eat radiation tablets or do you have a, a nuke proof umbrella what, what what can you learn from it i seem to remember yeah, on I... on the list back in uh, the early ukraine war there was kind of a, a rush to find where you could get your iodide tablets i guess the idea is just to get out of the fallout and take shelter the good news is you don't have to have according to most of the things that i've read you don't have to have a bunker 
to survive this. I think that's a lot of the myth, you know, where you, you need to have a bunker to survive it. So it doesn't necessarily go through everything. I mean, if, if you're inside your house and seal everything up and turn your air conditioner or your heater off so it's not bringing in cold air, close the dampers to your fireplaces and that type of thing. Don't eat contaminated food. And if you're a prepper, hopefully you've already been working on storing your food and your water, because if you're running on municipal water from your tap, that likely will be contaminated. So I guess if you didn't get hit by the blast, then it would be the, the fallout, which is not necessarily direct like gamma rays, but irradiated dust settling. That's why you were trying to seal up your house to keep the irradiated dust out. And I think, wasn't there supposed to be a half-life to the radiation too? Maybe that's where the two weeks comes in, that the irradiated dust would be half as bad after a certain amount of time. And then after that amount of time again, it would be a quarter of what it used to be. So you were kind of waiting until the the danger level dropped to where, all ah, right, it, it's not instantly toxic, but I'm going to have to look that up now that I got myself curious what that that radiation was. Yeah, there is a there is a math formula that I've seen that I believe it's every 24 hours it decreases one seventh or something something close to that. So I don't know if I would trust everything I read on the internet. So I would probably oh, give on. it a few extra days. Pretty quick, actually. It's a, it's supposed to be like a thousand rads an hour or something after an hour, and then two hours later it's down to four eighty. Seven hours, hundred an hour. In 14 hours, it's 43. I believe the soonest you'd want to go out is one or two days, and then other sources say one to two weeks. That's not necessarily to go out and live in this stuff. That's to where it's safe if they're evacuating your area. That's part of our preps as well, you know, emergency radios. So we, if there's any public broadcasting going on there where we can gain as much information as we can, Keep in mind that along with a nuclear explosion can be an EMP, so we probably or likely won't have electricity. So you'd want to be able to collect as much information you can. And if your neighborhood happens to have evacuation point at a certain point, then you'd, you know, you'd after that initial week or two or days or whatever it happens to be in your area, it may be safe. Of course, you'd want to stay covered up and Maybe wear a poncho and a hat and N95 mask cover your face. I would I would take every precaution that I could. But there was still that notion of if you waited a while after you know you're not in a blast zone, and let's say you were in a modest fallout zone, that things would get cool enough that you could have some limited exposure. Like if you had to run out to your car and get something, you could do that. But like you say, you wouldn't want to go and lounge in the hammock for a while. And if, if it takes two days to decay well enough for you to do that, run out your car, but it also takes two days for that fallout to actually hit your area, depending on where the blast was, you may go out right at the peak of it. I haven't read that anywhere, but it's not an instantaneous thing. It gets up in the atmosphere and it floats around with the air currents up there and then starts to fall. That happened with Chernobyl, where yes. it blew up. And then it was some days or weeks later that People in Poland or Sweden had to worry about the fallout cloud getting to them. But even then, they didn't turn into rubber suit monsters in Poland. At least I don't think so. No, but they all moved to Washington. Well, you say that, but Chernobyl is a pretty good example of uh, what's going to happen to an area that's been irradiated. 
while nature itself has kind of recovered, humans can obviously go in there. There's YouTube videos of all kinds of people going in there, but the affected area is is very local and it's still pretty severe from what I understand. But yeah, it is still limited to several miles within sight of the plant. So it's not like all of eastern Ukraine is irradiated. It's a bit of a pocket. And then there was the fallout and then it drops off and people have continued to grow wheat and do whatever they were going to do. But that was just one blast. I guess the idea is if you had a whole bunch of Chernobyls, you'd just have more bad zones and more fallout plumes. But it would appear, even from our somewhat gloomy official government things, is that some people are going to survive. I mean, even if you had kind of a radiation sickness thing and you lasted another 30 years instead of 40 years, it didn't take you out that fast. No, and, yeah. and at a smaller scale, we just, it wasn't that long ago, what, 2011, where we had the Fukushima nuclear yep. reactor incident. But I think of, uh, you know, the idea that there's going to be some survivors, it may not be me, but there's going to be some survivors and they're going to have to deal with whatever's left and basically rebuild. Uh was reminded somewhat recently of the whole Planet of the Apes series. I don't know if you remember that. The first movie was 1968 or 69, I think. That there, the presumption was there was a nuclear war that wiped out most of mankind. Then basically the apes evolved quickly into being the dominant race and people were the subordinate species, but people still survived. But they didn't really allow you to know that until the very end of the movie. Right? Well, they didn't want to give it away. I mean, they have to have some suspense. The Statue of Liberty. Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of the uh, the big gotcha moment in there is that the Planet of the Apes was Earth after the nuclear war. And Charlton Heston uh, curses at everybody for having screwed it up bad. So it was a cautionary tale in that same sense, but there were still survivors. But that was in that there are survivors category. It's just happened to have been thousands of years later. But there were a lot of those in the 50s, too. Time travel and finding out that nukes had wiped out the world, but there were people who survived underground and they carried on some remnant of civilization. And I think a lot of people will avoid the topic entirely, you know, when it comes to prepping with that fatalistic belief or attitude. What, that we're all toast? Yeah, but that's, that's really not probably true. The vast majority of people would probably survive. Even today, I believe, like in full out, like I was talking about before, where everybody unleashes their, their arsenal. I don't think that's really would benefit anybody, including the people that started it. You know, if you live next to a ICBM silo or something, it may not be all that healthy for you. But for the majority of the people, it's probably going to be survivable. Like I said, depending on your actions at the time. So... And, and preppers already have a lot of the, the preps in order, right? The food, the water, sanitation, medications, that type of thing, to where you don't need to leave your house. You're not going to have electricity. You probably won't have access to funds or grocery stores or anything like that for a while. That should be covered with, uh, with your regular preps. And then other things you might want to consider is if you're close enough to a blast, you're probably going to be in worse shape. But if the blast knocks out your windows, maybe even the back of your house. So if it blows through your front and maybe back out your the back of those windows, now everything's open. You'd want to be able to cover those up. It probably wouldn't be a good time to try to evacuate right now. So you'd want to be able to seal that up as quick as possible and go find a safe place in your in your home or wherever you're at and then wait it out. So that's where you think preppers have a built-in advantage, or maybe that's 
part of the motivation is if I'm going to have to hunker down in my house for two or three weeks to wait for the uh, radiation to die down, that's a good reason to have all of those freeze-dried meals? Well, I mean, we have a ton of reasons to prep, but I think rather than have the attitude, well, I'm not, I'm not going to worry about that because I'm going to die anyway, it's probably it should in, be an incentive to maybe up your game a little bit. Maybe get some plastic sheeting and some Kydex and some duct tape to repair and, and cover windows and doors. You'd want to, you know, seal up your doorways with some duct tape. One myth that people think is just breathing air is going to kill you. It's not. It's it's the particles in the air from outside. If you can keep that from getting in your house, you're, you're, you don't need a filtration system and all that. In fact, if you do have one that's bringing in fresh air, you'd want to disable that. You don't want to bring that outside air in. So you just want to stay inside and stay as safe as possible. Few people can do that for a couple of weeks other than preppers. Well, now you've sort of given me a good segue to close out and summarize. What, Brian, are you doing that would be prepping for nuke doom? Are you doing anything? I'm actually doing a little bit of research I can't afford a Geiger counter or anything like that, but there are some parts and detection devices that you can get that will tell you. I've been looking into that a little bit. I already have rolls of plastic. Now I'm thinking it may be beneficial to get a roll of Kydex as well. Plenty of duct tape. I'm not going to go overboard on it and worry about it and let it run our lives. You're going to get NBC suits for you and your wife? No, no, I don't own any masks. I think it's better advice just to stay out of it instead of trying to dress for the outdoors in the middle of a nuclear fallout. What about you, Jeff? Doing any prepping uh, with nuke doom in sight? Well, I don't think it's that specific, but like Brian mentioned, the, the plastic, the duct tape, all that stuff, it's just part of my normal preps. I'm part of the tornado alleys. I've had to tarp the roof down and tape up some windows when trees fall. So to me, it's normal. It's kind of a dual purpose preps. Yeah, it's in the back of my mind, but if you can see it and feel it, it's probably not going to be a, a good day. But I think if you have the right preps in place, you're you're good to go and just wait it out. Yeah, I think with the wait it out idea in mind, about the only thing I could say kind of qualified, and it doesn't, like you'd said, Jeff, it doesn't have to apply just to nukes, is the notion of if I had to stay in my house for two or three weeks. And couldn't go outside or shouldn't go outside. Now, that could work for a chemical spill and other things where I am you know, don't want to be outside. So I've looked at having more stored water indoors, even though I've got a hand pump on my well and I could go out and get all the water I want. But what if I don't want to go out? So I'm going to need water under the roof. But water like is said, important. It is. And it's easy to think that you've got a lot until you start using it up. And then you find out you get a two-day supply. And with the scenario we're talking about, you may need to use it to decontaminate yourself. So if you are you do get caught outside and you want to get in the house, the first thing you're supposed to do, or one of the first things you're supposed to do is get out of that clothing, bag it up, seal it up, get in the shower and wash. And if you don't have a shower available, then you're going to need to use what your, your stored water. A lot of people, their stored water is outside in totes or drums. It's probably not going to be an option. Or the ones that have, you know, set up tarps for, or or the uh, roof for rainwater. That's definitely not going to be an option. So well, no, you'd you have be collecting the radioactive dust water. Right. 
Yeah, so what you have stored in your home, sealed up in containers, is likely safe. Fortunately, like uh, Jeff had said, it's not like it's a radiation prep only, having the uh, the water and the food and the plastic and the duct tape. There's multiple uses. So if you've got those, you have a couple of nuke doom options, but it's not quite like the NBC suit, which is kind of dedicated to that. Any final notions on nuke doom? Mine is just don't ignore it because it's so scary. Just get on top of it and let it motivate you and keep you prepping because those preps aren't just for nuclear war or, or nuclear disaster or any type of attack. Any last minute advice there, Jeff? I agree 100%. I mean, it, it, you don't have to prep for a nuke, but all your preps are, are there for a nuke. Use the time we have now to get educated. Learn what that fallout ratio is and blast radiuses and, and all that. Learn learn weather patterns and which way the wind's going to blow. And maybe plan, plan to survive rather than plan to fry. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate your time, and uh, we'll get this one out. Thanks, Mick. All right. Thanks, Mick. Yeah, bye, guys. Bye now. Well, this episode went a little bit long as we got a bit chatty, so I'll just close it out here. But also wanted to give a shout-out to Carrie Q for the coffee she bought me this week. Thanks again for your support.